0: Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're in week two of our Advent series. We're calling it His Name Is. I'd like to ask you to stand for our scripture reading today. It's the same scripture reading each week of this series, at least to start with. We'll uh, get into many others as we go through this. But Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 Page 687 in the Bible uh, that is on your chair. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Well, this Advent, we're reflecting on this prophecy and in particular on Isaiah's profile of the Messiah written about 700 years before the Messiah was born. Isaiah 9 and verse 6 says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And as I mentioned last week, The first context into which Isaiah spoke and wrote these words was one of national turmoil and political chaos. Tension filled the air in the kingdom of Judah at the time. War was imminent for all sorts of reasons. No doubt the people's fears and anxieties were rapidly rising. And the political leadership of the southern kingdom of Judah particularly this guy named King Ahaz, had turned and run from God and was now relying on his own ingenuity and on the power of neighboring nations. And while it is without a doubt reaching too far to equate Israel's situation in the 8th century BC to ours in the 21st century AD, some similarities give these words of Isaiah particular resonance to us on the verge of uh, 2024. Because we are immersed in our own version of national turmoil, and we are immersed in our own version of political chaos, and you probably know and I know that that's probably going to increase once 2024 gets here. Isaiah chapter 9, what we just read, points to the Messiah whom we now believe to be Jesus. But at the time, it was pointing to a Messiah that I'm sure many who read it or heard it were thinking, we've got war on the horizon, we've got chaos, and it sounds like someone's going to come and make it all right and make it all good. So now we, as the kingdom of Judah, will not experience this calamity that God has said is coming. Well, that probably didn't happen quite the way they planned it out. And everybody believes that Isaiah was looking forward to the ultimate king who would come in the line of David and who would be the Messiah. In keeping with Hebrew culture, names indicate, suggest, imply character. Might be a little different for us, but in Hebrew culture, at least at this time, your name implied your character. In some ways, it was a kind of a foretelling of who you were going to be. So these four names listed in Isaiah chapter 9 paint a picture of what the Messiah will be like, and we can say it paints a picture of what God is like. And today we consider the name Mighty God. And like all of these two-word titles, this title triggers all sorts of images and ideas. Mighty God. And we're going to explore a few of those ideas and images in a minute. But one image or idea, at least that I think gets stirred up by this phrase, is conflict. Because if God is so mighty, why is the world so wacky? If God is so mighty, why does cancer and poverty and war happen? As theologian N.T. Wright put it, many in our world feel let down by the God they used to vaguely believe in. I think that probably resonates with a few of us, and I sense there are growing numbers of people in our society and culture, and maybe even in the church, for whom this kind of conflict cannot be casually swept aside. The dots don't connect, and this presents a problem when it comes to faith, at least for some people. So before jumping into this, I want to acknowledge the messiness of a mighty God in a broken and painful world. This is a real conundrum that raises all sorts of paralyzing questions and may cause a blue Christmas at this most wonderful time of the year. One thing is for sure, we're not going to resolve this century-old dilemma today. It's one of the tensions of living in the broken now with God, but not yet living in his full shalom that is out there and we wait for, sometimes known as the now and not yet. So with that kind of prelude, when we think of mighty God, power probably comes to mind. The name, the title, Mighty God, declares that the Messiah of Advent uh, is powerful. So powerful that Isaiah 9 says, one day the running of the world, the whole world, is going to rest on his shoulders. Now, to do that, to work that out, to run the world well, that takes a bit of power. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10, and you can see all these on the screen to hopefully make it easier To follow, but here God is speaking of Himself with attitude. Remember this, keep it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please I've got this picture in my head of God with a do-wrap on attitude kind of a let me just make it clear before we take another step and it is wise and it is good to remember God is great and he is powerful and he is way above us and infinitely far beyond us and his ways, as Isaiah 55 says, are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He's above and beyond us, and maybe here's the thing. He does not answer to us. He is God and he is great. John 1 in the New Testament says, In the beginning was the logos, is the word, wisdom, Reason, the Word, as it says in our Bibles, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Now, John's philosophical and metaphysical musings can be a bit much this early in the morning, but he's talking about the same guy that Isaiah was talking about 700 years earlier. He's saying, John is, Jesus was there. In the beginning of it all, he spoke things into existence. Here's what that means. He spoke and things that weren't there a moment ago appeared. Don't know about you, but that sounds like some serious power. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19, the apostle Paul makes reference to what he terms God's incomparable power, And then as Paul is prone to doing, here comes this avalanche from Paul. God's incomparable great power the same power as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So here we are back up into this grand meta narrative that describes and gives meaning to the universe. The big perspective. Jesus, the mighty God, is one of one. He's in a league of his own. There is none like him in this universe or in any other universe. Ultimate power. As Jesus says of himself in Matthew 28, this extraordinary statement, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because of all this, Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, starting in verse nine, therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father that is power. Now, these lofty words flow off the tongue rather easily, but if the Bible is announcing reality, then Jesus is above and beyond and, in a sense, over everything. The Bible is announcing reality. Jesus is great, and he is the gold standard of greatness. If we're interested in what it looks like to be great We need do nothing more than look at Jesus and say, how did he manifest greatness? When we say powerful or great or mighty as followers of Jesus, we simply need to remind ourselves that Jesus is the premier example of these things. Now, this isn't easy to swallow. I don't care how long... You've been a Christian or a follower. You've sat in church. This isn't easy to swallow. It sounds good. It preaches pretty well. Kind of get people to quiet up because it's sort of sobering. But it's not easy to swallow. It feels like a lot to bite off. But here's the thing. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The Gospels center on Jesus. And the rest of the New Testament looks back at Jesus. So Jesus is the center of the whole deal. One of the things we say during our Candlelight 9 p.m. Christmas Eve services, all of history converges in Christ and everything changes in the light of his coming. If this is true, at the bare minimum, we can say we can trust him when life, when the world, when the culture, when the nation is out of control because he's the most powerful being in any universe, his purposes for this world, his world, his purposes for you, his purposes for me will not be thwarted. His plan will not be stopped. His power is supreme. So what does that do? Here's what it does to me. Now I have the desire to experience power. I mean, I want some of this. I want to see it work. I want it to do things in me, this power. I want it to do things in us as a church, big things. Things commensurate with the magnitude of God's power. Not flashy, but things that are commensurate with The magnitude of God's power. So, here perhaps we slam into another barrier that is lodged within us. When considering God's mighty power, the struggle is to know what difference it makes in the gritty situations of our everyday lives. Because we don't live in ethereal philosophies or metaphysical musings, we live in broken families, we live in hard marriages. We live in bodies that ache from time to time. We live in bodies that get sick, real sick. We live with more month than money sometimes. We live with boring jobs and uncertain futures. We live with the pain of the child we could never have or a friendship that didn't last. We live with the unexpected death of someone we deeply loved. We live with doubt about whether or not there even is a God. We live with our pockets stuffed with all sorts of unanswerable questions. We live with the reality of war and terror attacks and school shootings and senseless death. Does the mighty power of God influence any of this? Well, here's the thing. The Bible is abundantly clear that God's power is both unique and extraordinary and available. God's extraordinary power, in other words, interacts and intersects with our ordinary lives and accomplishes things, changes things. See, the Bible is one long novel about those who have been changed by their encounter with God's power. The word became flesh And made his dwelling in and among us. His power and presence available to us in concrete and practical ways. This is what Advent is all about. God dwelling among us. From the Advent reading, Jason read a few minutes ago. Luke one thirty-five, spoken to this poor peasant nobody named Mary. The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This isn't just power, wow, look at it from behind a velvet rope as though it's a museum piece. That's impressive. This is power that is about to convert Virgin Mary into Pregnant Mary. Last time I checked, that takes some power. But even after she encountered this power, Mary was still poor. She was still a peasant. She was still Jewish, which means she still lived under Rome's thumb. She was oppressed. She was limited. So she experienced God's power, but everything in her life didn't instantly get better. That's important. And this is usually how God deploys his power. He works in and he works through people, creating something new in us restoring our old into something new, healing the broken in us, orchestrating this set of circumstances or another, reconciling this important relationship. But all of this usually happens slowly and over time. In Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 24, Moses says, and he's talking directly to God, Sovereign Lord, you've begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you you do? You have begun to show your servant, your greatness, and your strong hand. Well, by the time this was put down on paper, Moses had seen God do the most amazing of things. But Moses says, you've begun to show your servant, your greatness, and your strong hand. We love the lightning strike miraculous, right? Boom, healing. Healing. Boom! no longer angry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But more often than not, God gradually, quote, "shows us His greatness and strong hand." His power then unfolds in our lives. He slowly creates something new. He gradually restores what's old in us. He slowly heals our brokenness. He orchestrates things in his time. Those of us that follow Jesus, I imagine at least some of us, can look back 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And the person we were then is not who we are today because we've experienced God's power at work within us, as Ephesians tells us. And this power at work within us has actually made a difference in who we are today. And I could spend the rest of this time and well into your lunch naming names of people at Oak Hills Church for whom this is true. Slow and gradual alterations by the power of God at work in them. I've seen it happen. And this is part of the beauty of being gauged over the long haul in the life of a local church. Because you see this happen in people. Not very often uh, does it happen quickly. It happens gradually. The growth is often unseen. It's happening under the ground of one's life. We don't look at a branch today that has nothing on it. And then tomorrow go out and look at the same branch and find a fat and ripe orange on it. This doesn't work that way. Growth doesn't work like that, but growth is happening even when it seems like nothing is happening. And the beauty of being engaged in a local church over the long haul is we start to see this in one another. I've seen this in so many of you. One of the challenges at this stage of the game for me is to be able to talk about things without seeing faces where I know some of the story and sometimes the thing I'm talking about, I know the person I'm looking at desperately wants to realize whatever it is that's being said. Not because what I'm saying is all that... Stunning, but because some pieces of it contain God's truth and people hunger for that. I've seen this in so many of you. Who you are today is not who you were X number of years ago when I first met you. So I want to ask you to close your eyes for a second. This is not the end. This is a nap in the middle. (laughs) Give an applause. There we go. And we'll learn how to clap. Good. So close your eyes for just a second. I don't know where you're at with this, but it just occurs to me on this topic: experience power. Where do you need it today? What do you need to experience God's power? Not in a lightning strike, just that slow, gradual work he does. Maybe in your marriage, to a common place where it's needed. Maybe with some aspect of your physical health. Maybe with some aspect of your emotional health, particularly as it relates to this thing called shame. Maybe as it relates to some old wound. Maybe as it relates to just this general overall feeling of being disconnected from God for whatever reason, far away. And you're not interested in some sort of long guilt walk, nor should you be. But there's a desire to reconnect with God, but you need God's power at work within. Where do you need to experience his power right now today? Holy Spirit, would you keep this area in the front of our mind And more than that, continue to do your underground work to bring forth fruit in this area. And we pray in your name, amen. When I think mighty God, it sparks the need to rethink power. God is not a puppet master who pulls the strings and pushes the buttons on every single happening on this earth. He does not sit in a celestial command and control center and twist knobs and pull levers to cause this goodness over here and that problem over there. He's in charge, but not that way. He's in charge, but not in the way that you or I might be in charge. He is supremely powerful, but his character can handle supreme power in ways you and I may not be able to handle. He is, in the language of Hebrews, sustaining all things, but, Isaiah 55, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. And yet when Isaiah described Messiah as mighty God, many of those who first heard this in 700 BC and many who have heard it since, including those at the time of Jesus, assumed would be the word I would use. The Messiah would be a strong and powerful conqueror type, a Russell Crowe gladiator type who would lead an uprising and defeat the enemy, a king who would lead his military to defeat the enemy and usher in this long-awaited era of peace. A baby born to a virgin in a barn in Bethlehem was not in the script, or so most thought. Think of ourselves, and we think of power. Just think of what image pops into your mind. We think of greatness, greatness. By default, we may think in terms of overwhelming the opposition, winning, being number one, being the greatest. It's the nature of the game in sports. Not sure you're aware of this, but the Packers beat the reigning Super Bowl champions last Sunday night. The Kansas City Chiefs, the Packers beat the Kansas City Chiefs. Jordan Love was the best quarterback (laughs) on the field, not Patrick Mahomes and all his all-state commercials or whatever it is. State Farm, sorry. So in sports, it's kind of the nature of it. I guess it's the nature of the game in politics. Maybe it's the nature of the game in business. But here's the thing. It is not the nature of the game in the kingdom of God. This vision of power, of being the greatest, of winning, being number one, has nothing to do with the game in the kingdom of God. See power and greatness for the Christ follower are displayed by Jesus at his cross. Think about what's going on there. That's power hanging on the cross. That's kingdom power hangs on crosses. People down below, what are they doing? They're taunting him. What are they saying? Come down if you are the king. In other words, show us how powerful you are by getting off of that thing and coming down here. And he says, Forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. So he showed them his power. That's kingdom power. In Mark chapter 10, two of Jesus' disciples ask if they can sit on his right and on his left when all is said and done. Oh, small request. Can you go get me lunch? It's a little bigger than that. They want to be the number one ranked disciples. But the other 10 get wind of this. They get mad. They're bugged that these two are schmoozing, trying to get the best seats in the house. So Jesus calls a team meeting. Here's what he says in Mark chapter 10. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. So Jesus flips conventional wisdom about power and greatness, and he just flips it upside down. He is the mighty God, but his might does not operate like the might of the world. It is not power over It is serving under. Those who are ranked number one in the kingdom live like they're ranked number 12. Power in the kingdom of God is an under thing. It is not an over thing. So we have this wonderfully complex challenge of living as kingdom people, emulating Jesus' upside-down way of power in a world that has no concept of this way of power, no interest in this way of power, and very little respect for this way of power. But the question is, will we follow it anyway? There's great mystery in the ways of God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. There is no mystery in His way of power. It is displayed on a cross. Will we follow this way? Will we follow it in the workplace? Think of the phrases, climbing the ladder, achieving the next milestone, being number one. I'm telling you, I don't have an answer for this, but the answer is not what matters. It's the question that matters for those who are followers of Jesus. What does all that look like with a kingdom perspective on power? What does power look like with those who have wronged us in our marriage? Some friendship that fell apart. Someone we disagree with. Get the image in your head. Jesus forgave the very ones who nailed him to a cross. That's power. Letting go of the pain. Letting go of the impulse to get back at them. That's power. But it's not power over. It's power under. So I said a few minutes ago that the power of the mighty God, part of it is he is over all things. But he's not over all things the way that we think of that, he's actually over all things in an under sort of way. And this is why humility is so important. Humility is a manifestation of kingdom power. That's why this is so important. It's so crucial in terms of who we are as kingdom people and who we are as a church. Humility is a manifestation of kingdom power. Standing down. Putting others first. Brings me to the last thing. Think of mighty God. It makes me want to reframe evil. If God is so powerful. Why is the world such a mess? Why does cancer happen? Why do wars occur? Why do vulnerable people suffer? Why does wrong seem to so often win? Why is there so much pain? Let me say this loud and clear. This struggle has gone on for centuries without an answer. I don't know the answer to any of those questions. I do know they are agonizing questions. We are not going to solve this centuries-old dilemma in the next 90 seconds. So what can we say? A few things. I think we underestimate the magnitude and impact of the curse that is on this world because of human sin. I think in some cases, we don't even remember it is under a curse. The world is a mess and not a small one because of human sin. Because when human sin broke loose, all sorts of dominoes fell in the direction of ugly. Nothing works the way it was intended to work. Everything is broken Everything is impacted by the curse. You are impacted by the curse. I am impacted by the curse. Cancer comes ultimately from the curse. Wars originate in the curse. Poverty was born. In the curse. Sometimes behind the question, why is there so much evil in the world? We envision a powerful God who is micro controlling the universe from a celestial command and control center, pulling levers and twisting knobs, but incapable or unwilling to prevent the tragedies and pains of this life. This picture is flawed. God doesn't run the world this way. He doesn't arbitrarily or even strategically pick this person out of the crowd and say, I'm going to make them suffer. Turn the knob. Or this group, let's make life rough for them. Pull the lever. He doesn't do it that way. The curse is real. But here's the other thing. God runs the world and fulfills his purposes through cooperating people. That's the plan. And T. Wright said, The God of the Bible intended from the start to work in his world through faithful, obedient humans. The implication, if he is right, is what happens when unfaithful, disobedient humans have the power. Then what? See, the incarnation, the infleshing of God is ongoing through his people who cooperate, and here's the potent word who partner. With God. See, God empowers you to have a say in what happens in this universe. We are agents of the King who have say and power to influence and, yes, even change things, make a difference. But we have to be open and available and willing to invest our time, our gifts, our prayers our energy, in efforts that bring forth the change and inaugurate the goodness. God is looking for partners in the work of his kingdom. See, praying it forth, bringing forth the kingdom, just like everything else, is slow work, and it takes time. In one reason why it takes so much time is because human beings are so central to the process. So when human beings aren't cooperating, the work slows down. We could go into, we'd be here a long time, but there are verses in the Bible that just rattle our cage when it comes to God saying through his prophets to pagan kings, you're in that spot because God put you there. There's a story in, I shouldn't be doing this, but in Daniel where <laughs> Daniel says to the king of Babylon, who is pure pagan, you're in that spot because the God of the universe puts you in that spot. Romans 13 says a similar thing. The leaders that are leading are doing so because God has put them there. Now, you think about that mess. Why? Because God accomplishes His work and brings His power forth, not with a knob twist or a lever pull, but He does it through people who are to cooperate. And when they don't, the mess gets big quick. If God pulled the levers and twisted knobs and reduced us to robots, where Uh, who were pre-programmed to always do what was right and good, we would be lobbing other complaints at him. If you're so powerful, why is the world so evil would become, if you're so good, why do we feel so controlled and imprisoned and micromanaged? Why are you so insecure, God, that you won't let us do what we want? You see... The way God runs the universe, you and I can do whatever we want. That's the way God intended it. I suppose he could have orchestrated it and arranged it so that we couldn't do whatever we want. But you don't know what we'd be doing. We'd be having meetings like this, talking to each other, going, he's so micromanaging of us. He's so controlling I mean, I got an idea. Try this at home. Pick one or the other of you. Pick one of the kids. Pick a friend, whatever. And for a week, have them dictate every single thing that you're going to do, when you're going to do it, how you're going to do it, and you have no say in the matter. And see how that plays for you. I don't think you'll like it after the first 12 seconds. So there are deep mysteries in all of this business about God being powerful. But God is good. And God is powerful, and he wants us to partner with him in bringing his good into this broken and battered world. See, one of the clues that there's more going on with power than God pushing buttons and twisting knobs is God's lamenting over the world. He's a mighty God who weeps at the tomb of his friends who have just lost their brother. He is a mighty God who weeps as he looks over the city of Jerusalem and realizes what could have been if they had cooperated and partnered with him. He is a mighty God who fervently prays to avoid the cross. He prays so hard, he actually weeps knowing what could have been, but what now will be. He's a mighty God who looks out from his cross at those who put them there, and in a way weeps. Power with tears in his eyes. Power with nails in his hands and feet. Power temporarily defeated by the power of human sin and selfishness. But I'll end where we started. God is powerful. God is king. And one day shalom will come and all will be well. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mighty God, powerful, able, good, sometimes hard to fit all these things into our limited brains. But we adore you today. We want to simply set aside all the mysteries and the wonderings and maybe even the questions or just bring the questions right into the middle of all this and still adore you, worship you, cry out to you.